Great, well, we're going to come to God's Word now. Catherine's going to come and read to us, so please do grab a Bible if you have one with you. And we're going to turn at Mark chapter 14, verse 27. Thanks, Catherine. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Thanks very much, Catherine. Well, do keep that open and let's pray as we come to God's word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Father, we pray with the psalmist this morning that that would be a reality for us, that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things this morning in your word. And as we do, please be challenging us and please be changing us and making us more like your son, Jesus. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen. Well, back in the um, mid-1950s, a U.S. Air Force transport plane with its captain and five crew members was flying over Alaska when it hit a pretty significant storm and veered off course somewhat. And when they finally got hold of radio control, they were told by the base that they had veered nearly 200 miles off course. And so when these new coordinates came through to the navigator on the plane, he refused to believe them. He couldn't accept that they had gone that far wrong. He didn't accept the facts that were before him. Instead, he trusted in his own faulty human instincts. 
And it turned out to be a pretty tragic decision because three days later, a rescue team found the plane with six frozen bodies inside over 200 miles away from where it should have been. Now, it's a pretty somber story to start with, but it's a story that alerts us to the danger of self-reliance, of being overconfident in self. And as we come to Mark chapter 14 this morning, so we see another story that also alerts us to the danger of self-reliance, this time in a spiritual sense. And there's just two points for us this morning that are drawn out of the contrast we see between Jesus and his disciples. Because in the disciples, we see proud hearts and the danger of self-reliance. But in Jesus, we see a prayerful heart and the glory of God-reliance. And so as we make our way through the passage this morning, our prayer must be that our hearts are more in line with that of the Lord Jesus than they are with his disciples. Well, we left off last week in the upper room. Jesus was with his disciples and he was eating. They were celebrating the Passover meal together. And we noted there that two things happened around the table. Firstly, Jesus exposed the corruption or the betrayal, deep-seated betrayal within Judas's heart. But Jesus also spoke of a new covenant, a new way of relating to God through his own death and resurrection. Corruption and covenant we looked at last week. And now as we come to today's story, the meal has come to a close. And you see in verse 26, they sang a hymn, which was traditional at the end of the Passover meal. And after they'd sung their hymn, verse 26, they went out to the Mount of Olives. But of course, Judas was no longer with them. Instead, he had slipped out into the darkness to go to the chief priests to collect the temple guards And he will shortly return to betray Jesus with a kiss. And so you see these words before us now are words that Jesus directs towards the 11 remaining disciples. And in them we see a prediction, we see a promise, and we see a protest. Firstly, the prediction, look, verse 27, look at what Jesus says. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus doesn't exactly mince his words, does he? You will all fall away, he says to his disciples. Full stop, no exceptions. You will all desert me in my hour of greatest need, says Jesus. How can you be so sure? Well, have a look at the little phrase there in the middle of verse 27. For it is written. You see, God has already spoken of this moment of desertion centuries before it happened. And of course, God's word cannot be broken. Jesus knows what awaits him. And he's actually quoting here from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. God is speaking. And he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The shepherd, of course, is Jesus. And the striking refers to this whole period leading up to the climax and that final decisive blow that was struck at the cross. And of course, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. 
That's the disciples. And they will desert Jesus. You will all fall away. And it didn't take long to be realized. Have a look at verse 50. Because shortly before this conversation, Jesus is arrested. And we learn in verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. That's the prediction of Jesus. But the prediction wonderfully comes with a promise look in verse 28. Because Jesus goes on to say, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, Jesus doesn't just speak of death and desertion. He speaks of resurrection and restoration. He speaks of that glorious moment when the good shepherd will rise to new life and he will go ahead of his disciples into Galilee. And once again, he will gather them to himself. You see, they will fall, but Jesus will rise. They will scatter But Jesus wonderfully, once again, will gather his disciples to himself. And you wonder whether they even heard this glorious promise, don't you? Did it register in their minds? Because as you read on with what follows, it appears that it didn't. They're still processing what Jesus said in verse 27, and they can't accept it. They cannot accept what Jesus has said of their desertion. Which brings us thirdly to the protest In verse 29, a prediction, a promise, and then here's the protest look. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. If ever there was a line that highlighted the danger of self-reliance, then that is it, isn't it? If all fall away, I won't, says Peter. They might. Do you know what? I've seen a few cracks in the other disciples. I've seen a few doubts. I've seen a few little bits of weakness in their faith. A few of them might desert, but not me, says Peter. I'm the exception to the rule, yeah? Brimming with self-confidence. Yet within a couple of hours, Peter wouldn't just have deserted Jesus and fled the scene, but on three separate occasions, he will have denied that he even knew him. And so Jesus responds in verse 30. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. You can imagine the gentleness almost of these words. Truly, Peter, I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter still refuses to listen. It's remarkable, isn't it? Look at the strength of his language in verse 31. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter is still trusting in his own human willpower rather than trusting in the wisdom and the words of Jesus. Now, I've got no doubt that Peter's heart was in the right place. He dearly loved his Lord. And we see that at the end of John's gospel when Peter is wonderfully reinstated. But he failed to face up to his own weaknesses. Peter was blind to the danger of self-reliance. And he wasn't on his own look, verse 31. All the others said the same. So you see, when you... Listen to a dialogue like this between Peter and Jesus. We're forced to ask the question, aren't we? How well do we really know ourselves and our own hearts? Because the reality is, Jesus knew Peter far better than Peter knew himself. And it's the same today. 
Jesus knows us. And he knows our hearts and our frailties and our weaknesses and our pride and our self-reliance far better than we know ourselves. So you see, when Jesus speaks and when he warns gently as he does in a passage like this, I think it'd be a good thing that we listen to him and take him seriously. And as we think this morning about the the danger of the self-reliance of the disciples, there's two lessons or applications that I'd like to bring to us this morning. And the first one's this, pride comes before a fall. Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Could have been written for Peter, couldn't it? Those words could have been written for Peter because his self-reliance and his pompous pride was quickly followed by a significant fall. And do you know what those words were written for Peter? They were. But they were written for me and for you as well. Because you see, as a church, we can be ever so quick to shake our collective heads at the failings of the disciples, when in reality, our hearts are no different, just as frail, just as weak, just as wayward, just as self-reliant. And like Peter, we are a finger click away from slipping up and falling into sin. You see, one moment we feel like our love for the Lord is so strong, don't we? And we're walking well with the Lord Jesus. And we're stood in church as a family of believers. And we belt out our praises to God. But the next moment, we'll walk out those doors. And we'll be looking at pornography on a website. We'll be snapping uncontrollably at our children. We'll be gossiping unhelpfully about a Christian brother or sister in Christ, we'll be looking wrongfully at our neighbor's wife and the list could go on and on and on. Just like Peter's heart, our heart too is full of pride and self-reliance. And just like Peter, we're a finger click away all the time from falling into sin. It is only by the grace of God and the prayers of his people that it does not happen more frequently. But by way of encouragement, We also learn in this passage that God's knowledge of us, God knowing what we're like in our hearts, does not prevent him from choosing us. You see, when Jesus called his disciples three years previously, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that they would desert him in his hour of greatest need. He knew the states of their hearts, but he chose them anyway. That is the beauty and the wonder of God's love for us, is it not? You see, he does not choose us for his team because we are the finished article. Jesus chooses us for his team in order to transform us and to shape us and to mold us into the finished article. And you know what? If we're going to be honest this morning, there's still plenty of work to be done in our hearts, isn't there? Plenty of pride and plenty of self-reliance that still needs to be rooted out. As one commentator said... Pride is the dandelion of the soul. It's the weed that won't go away. But Jesus wonderfully is committed day after day, rooting out that pride and self-reliance that dominates our hearts and giving us a wonderful reliance on himself. And it will be a work that one day is complete in glory when our proud hearts are no more. 
So you see, firstly, we see proud hearts and the danger of self-reliance in the disciples. But secondly, as we come to the Lord Jesus, we see a prayerful heart and the glory of God reliance. And in the second scene that is before us now, it's a, it's a scene of three things. It is a scene of trouble. It is a scene of perfect trust. And it is a scene ultimately of triumph. Firstly, the trouble. Have a look at verse 32 to 34. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. That word Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew word that that means oil press. So you see, it seems that Jesus and his disciples have now gone to a specific location on the Mount of Olives where at some point there was this little olive press where they gathered the olives and they squeezed them for oil. And it would have been a familiar retreat to Jesus and his disciples as they got away from the busyness and the crowds in Jerusalem. But of course, this retreat was no ordinary retreat for Jesus. Because this was one of the defining moments in his life. As he once again submitted to the will of the Father in prayerful dependence. And in doing so, edged ever closer to the hour of his death. You see, the disciples now, of course, are down to 11. And you'll see in verse 32 that he leaves eight of them at a little bit of a distance and gives them the command to sit here while I pray. And then he takes Peter, James and John, verse verse 33, the inner circle. He takes them with him a little bit further. And you know what? It's the same three, isn't it? Peter, James and John, the same three he took with him up the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. And on that occasion, he took them and he almost peeled back his humanity. And he gave the disciples a wonderful glimpse of his majesty and his glory and his power and his divinity. And on this occasion, he takes the same three disciples. But he gives them a wonderful glimpse this time of his humanity. Do you see his words in verse 33? He began to be deeply troubled and distressed. Verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, now it's not that Jesus was taken by surprise by what happened in Gethsemane, but he is increasingly overwhelmed by the reality of what awaits him. It's like being booked in for an operation, which is three months away and it's there. It's going to happen. It's a reality, but it's in the future. But as the day approaches and on the morning of the operation itself, you may wake with a, with a heightened sense of anxiety and concern because the day is upon you and the trouble is here, if you like. And so it is with Jesus as the reality of the cross creeps ever closer. So his distress and his trouble and his sorrow are heightened. And the word trouble that you see there in verse 33, it can also be translated anguish. You see, it's a cry that anticipates the anguish of the cross. And that cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As one commentator said, Jesus came to the Father 
in this little interlude before his betrayal. But he found hell rather than heaven open before him. You see, Jesus is troubled to the very core of his soul by the reality of what awaits. But wonderfully, he displays a trust and a dependence in his father. Verse 35 and 36. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Wonder where you turn instinctively in times of trouble and temptation. Because Jesus here gives us a wonderful example and model to follow. Just like a a child turning to a loving father in dependence. So Jesus turns to his father in heaven for heavenly assistance in this time of great need. And that term Abba that you see there in verse 36, it's an expression of intimacy, of dependence, of reliance upon. And so Jesus comes before his loving heavenly father. And what does he pray for? Verse 35. He prays that the hour might pass. Jesus prays that the hour of his death might pass from him. You see, in his humanity, he recoils from the very thought of the cross. He shudders at the very prospect. And so he goes on to ask and pray the same thing in verse 36. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. What is the cup that Jesus refers to here? Well, it's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of God's wrath, which Jesus came into this world to drink at the cross for us. All three major prophets speak of this cup that is in view here. as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they speak again and again of this cup that Jesus speaks about in Mark chapter 14. Look what Isaiah says in chapter 51. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Your God who defends your people, see, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. God says to his people, you will never drink of the cup of my wrath again. Why? Because the Lord Jesus came to drink it in our place. You see, what we have here in Mark chapter 14 is what theologians would probably call penal substitution, which is actually pretty simple. Penal means penalty, and substitution means to stand in the place of or in the shoes of. You see, it is us that deserve to drink from the cup of God's wrath because of our willful disobedience. It is the just penalty for sin, but the Lord Jesus in great love, came to this world and he took the cup from our hands and he drunk it down to its very dregs, every last drop, so that we need not drink any of God's anger. And you see, that prospect is the prospect that troubled Jesus greatly, which is why he prays. Lord, let this hour pass from me. Lord, please, Father, take this cup from me. But you notice how he finishes his prayer? 
Yet not my will be done, but yours, said Jesus. Not my will, Lord, but yours. Your will be done. And it's not just a throwaway line that you tag on to the end of a prayer. It is the very heart and substance of Jesus' prayer that he prayed supremely, Lord God, above all things, I am dreading the hour that comes. But above all things, I want to walk your road. I want to take your path. I long to do your will. May your will be done. And in wonderful, prayerful, humble submission, he submits to the will of his Father. What perfect trust, yeah? We sang already about that dependence, and Timothy stood there and said it means trust. What wonderful trust from Jesus. The cross is before him, but he prays, not my will but your will be done. What a contrast Jesus is to the proud, self-reliant disciples who represent him. So you see, firstly, Jesus is troubled by the hour that awaits. Secondly, he trusts in his Father's will. And thirdly, Jesus triumphs. Verse 41 and 42. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting enough the hour has come look the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners rise let us go here comes my betrayer notice that jesus prayer does not change his circumstances the hour does not pass The cup is not taken from him. The cross must happen. It has to happen. But the prayer is answered in a different way, isn't it? Because what the father does is give his son renewed commitment and power and resolve to walk the way of the cross, to do what he came to do. You see, Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane almost on his knees, prostrate before the Father, sweating blood and tears in anguish with the reality that what awaits. But after immersing himself in prayer, he now stands assured and strengthened in the sovereign will of God, ready to meet his betrayer. Do you see the impact of prayer? It doesn't actually change his circumstances here. God can do and does do sometimes, but not always. But what he does do is strengthen the resolve, his spirit working within us, to walk the way of the cross. Rise, let us go, says Jesus, because here comes my betrayer. Well, as we think about... Jesus' prayerful heart and the glory of God's reliance. I want to finish with three quick applications as we think about our hearts and on whom we rely. And the first one is this, prayer and reliance. You see, we thought about this already this morning, but prayer, without doubt, is the greatest litmus test of where our dependence and reliance actually is. You see, the disciples, when they were faced with trouble and temptation, they backed themselves, they fell asleep, and they deserted Jesus in his hour of need. Jesus, when faced with trouble and temptation, went to his Father in prayer and re-emerged, strengthened to do his will. A picture of God-reliance. You see, the man or woman of God who prays little depends much on self. 
It's fact. You pray little, you are depending much upon yourself and your own resources to walk the path that Jesus has put before you. But the man or woman of God who prays much is the man or woman of God who depends much on him. So I wonder what your heart reveals this morning about where your confidence really lies. You proud? Self-reliant? Or are you prayerful and God-reliant? The second thing is this, prayer and comfort. You see, when we cry out to God in, in great pain and sorrow, here's the reality. Jesus knows. He knows. And some of you this morning will be going through significant troubles and temptations and testings in life. Here's the reality, and it shouts out of this passage, Jesus knows, and he's been way beyond what you're ever going through. (laughs) He's experienced the deepest sorrow and trouble and anguish imaginable. And he knows, and he went there for you, that one day those troubles and those trials and those testings will be no more. If that's you this morning, go to the Lord Jesus in prayer, because he knows And he is the one that can meet your needs, both your troubles and your temptation. And then finally, prayer and obedience, verse 37 and 38. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. It's remarkable, isn't it, that in Jesus' hour of greatest need, he is still more concerned about the disciples than himself. Do you see that, verse 38? Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. You see, Jesus isn't asking them to pray for him, as we often think at this point. He doesn't say, sit here and pray for me as I go to my hour, as I go to the cross. No doubt he would have appreciated those prayers, but it's not what he says. He says, stay here and watch your own heart and pray that you will not fall into temptation. You see, the spirit is willing, as it was in the disciples and maybe for us, but the flesh is weak. We may have every good intention, just like the disciples, of being obedient to Jesus. But the only way to walk that road of obedience is by being watchful and prayerful. Why don't you take a moment just to reflect on something that's been said to you through God's word this morning. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table as we think again about the cup that Jesus drank for us.